Welcome to Computer Game Evolution, a podcast about the evolution of computer games. Episode 3.9, A Hop, Skip and a Jump. Jumping. Who invented it? That's a question I am not going to answer today, so that I don't have to read up on animal locomotion. Humans have been jumping for various reasons for a long time too, and in the ancient Greek Olympics you could even get famous for jumping particularly well, or poorly. Then, in the second half of the 19th century, sports got a big boost in popularity for reasons I outlined in episode 1.3, and also because the springtime of nations happened, and what better way for romantic nationalism to advertise itself than international sports tournaments. So jumping started making headlines again. Decades and nationalist world wars later, video games appeared, and it didn't take long for them to advance from electronic tennis to activities more directly focused on jumping. Well, as it is common, they were beaten to it by electromechanical cabinets. Let's recap. Grand National Race, released by Sega in 72, let you steer a mechanical horsey into hurdles attached to a rolling green belt and hit a jump button to send the creature and its rider into terrified leaps over the obstacles. If you mistime your jump, you knock the hurdle over and got no points for the attempt, but the hit hurdles reset into their upright position on the underside of the rolling belt, and you could try again and again on the repeating pattern for as long as there was time left. Key Games, well, Atari's steeplechase cabinet, followed Sega's lead in 75, taking away any kind of directional control and leaving just one big jump button. Okay, there were six jump buttons for six players, each controlling one of the seven riders on the screen. The seventh one was computer-controlled and acted as the timer. Your horse slowly scrolled along its track on the screen to the right, glowing hurdles appeared and scrolled fast to the left, and if you didn't jump in time, your horse got knocked back a little, to the delight of the other players, because reaching the finish line marker at the right side of the screen first was the whole point. Of course, the closer you were to the right side of the screen, the less time you had to react to incoming hurdles, which put extra pressure on the leader. In 76, Atari continued the riding and jumping theme with Stunt Cycle, a game about performing a single stunt jump on a motorbike. The cabinet had a strange screen layout. It was split in three floors. You started with the bike riding to the right on the top, then you went into a pipe drawn on the overlay, reappeared riding to the left on the middle floor, then another pipe, and finally you got to the bottom floor with a couple of ramps bookending a row of buses. I think the screen was arranged like that to give the player some room to build up the exact speed necessary for a safe jump. Both overshooting and undershooting led to failure. Scrolling would have looked nicer, but at that point Atari probably could not manage bringing all the ramps and the buses into view smoothly. Steeplechase hurdles had been simple blocks. Stunt cycle was controlled by handlebars, which was a bit excessive, since again the players, one or two alternating, had no need to steer and all they did was twist the hand throttle to get the speed right. There was no jump button, which makes Stunt Cycle one of the few jumping games of the period not to get any jump button. And I do want to draw attention to it. In the electromechanical years and in the 70s, games tended to stick to realistic control devices. Guns for shooting, joysticks, steering wheels and handlebars for vehicle controls, tank levers, boxing gloves for punching, periscopes when they could get away with it. We've seen it all. 
1980, Japan got a crazy climber cabinet, where the player was given two joysticks to control both of the climber's arms individually. But jumping? It's like engineers looked at jumping and said, nope, a button will do. And it stayed that way until Bandai introduced a floor pad controller for the Famicom in the mid-80s. In 77, Stunt Cycle was released in home console form, still with a handlebar controller, now built into the body of the dedicated console. Still no jump button, but it had more things to jump over. Tiny blocks you negotiated by revving up the engine to do a wheelie. In 78, the world is failing to resist space invaders, but Gremlin Industries is releasing Lane Hawk's Frogs, a game for girls, because that's what all the girls love. Frogs wasn't a big hit, but it does introduce us to a few new ideas. First of all, this is the earliest video game I know of when you jump not to avoid something, but to reach something. When your frog is sitting on its lily pad, it's not threatened by anything. You can spend the entire game chilling on it, maybe occasionally taking a dive in the water at the sides of the screen, which kind of make the frog vanish for a few seconds, but that would bring you zero points. To get points, you had to jump and shoot the frog's tongue at various flying insects, mostly butterflies. None of them were threatening, but you needed a good aim as the hitboxes were small. You could move to the left or to the right freely on the pad, but the frog tended to jump forward and you had no aerial control over your jumps, so just mashing buttons would quickly make you dunk yourself into the lake with no points. Frogs was a very different game. Unfortunately, it was different at a time when the masses wanted space invaders and more space invaders. It wasn't entirely forgotten, though, and in 82, its clone Frogbog was released on the Intellivision, offering even a two-player mode. In 79, we're going to put the recap aside for a moment to introduce a seemingly unrelated game that does play a part in all this and is generally nice to know about. The Space Invaders fever was still raging, but the novelty was beginning to wear off. So a long-running Japanese tabloid, Weekly Asahi Geno, launched a series of articles looking for Japan's next big arcade hit, even as a concept. The reporters were quite serious about it. They explored Japan's emergent microcomputer scene and checked out programming clubs in colleges. At Tokyo University, they found a couple of groups. One didn't have a good game idea, but it may have been the club sponsored by Taito to raise new developer talent, and its members would go on to make games at ASCII Corporation. The other Tokyo University team, Theoretical Science Group, didn't have any ideas, even in theory, but these guys asked the reporters to get back to them in a couple of days. One member of the group, by the name of Tabata, told all about what happened next in a 2002 interview translated at schmaplations.com. At the brainstorming session they held to offer something to the reporters, the initial idea was to make a game about eliminating cockroaches in a house by placing traps. Relatable. But running around spacious rooms would be boring, and they thought to turn the space into something like a go-board, a grid. Then, someone remembered a movie that had just come out, Alien. And cockroaches became aliens, and the roach traps were replaced by pitfall traps. Not featured in the movie Alien, but why not? You would be defending not a house, but a city. And trying to pick a location, they settled on Old Kyoto, Heiankyo. It's one of the cities known for its regular street grid, a pattern borrowed from China. 
The player's character would be a policeman trying to stop an alien invasion of Heian Kyo by means of digging pits and burying aliens in them. And that's how the game Heian Kyo Alien came to be. Actually, at first it was only an idea, and the magazine people liked it and wrote about it. While that was happening, the theoretical science group decided to make a real game based on the idea. Tabata was the only guy with an Apple II, so he programmed it, not very well. According to him, it took 10 minutes just to load. A senior student in the group took the coding and the Apple II over and completely rewrote the game, switching to low-res graphics mode for speed. Hello again, huge colored blocks. Then they get contacted by an electronics company, Denki Onkyo, and redid the game again in a few months as an arcade cabinet, cursing the primitive development tools available in Japan at the time every step of the way. Heian Kyo Alien, the 1979 cabinet, was not the number one hit of the Japanese arcades, but not far behind, widely known, and quite possibly the game that whetted the people's appetite for Pac-Man's maze action. Heian Kyo Alien was a bit slower, as digging holes took time, five presses of the dig button, and burying aliens that fell into the holes took another five presses of the bury button. There were lots of aliens in the maze, all moving completely randomly with no rhyme or reason, they would eat you if they touched you, so nowhere was safe, and you had to be everywhere at once to dig more holes and bury the aliens in the old holes before they got out, and there was a time limit. But you could play the game with a friend, cooperatively, with two shovel cops on the screen at the same time. It was fun, and players kept coming up with optimal strategies for hole placement, creating extra buzz around the game. Heian Kyo Alien was so big, it got featured in Game Center Arashi, a popular late 70s, early 80s manga about arcades, games, high-score rivalries, and special powers. There were microcomputer ports to NEC micros, including the TK80BS, and the game was so fondly remembered it was ported to Nintendo's Game Boy in 89, and decades later a version for modern computers got released, and you can still buy it on Steam. As for international fame, in 1980 Sega picked up Heian Kyo Alien for distribution, and so Gremlin Industries released it in America under the name Digger, with little success. Going back to the recap for a moment, the same year Atari released the VCS port of Steeplechase. The number of horses and riders got reduced to four, but there was an addition too. The control scheme was expanded from one button to the full paddle controller, so a button and a knob. You twisted the knob to adjust the height of your jump, so that you didn't stumble on larger obstacles, and didn't spend too much time airborne over tiny hurdles. Horses can't propel themselves in the air. The game was neat, but not the key development of the year. The same 1980, Universal Company in Japan, the company we know by Cosmic Avenger from the last time, released a cabinet that had a great influence on games about jumping, even though it itself did not feature any jumping. The game was Space Panic, planned by Kazutoshi Ueda, who insisted on an original design, because the Space Invaders clone Universal had been releasing at the time no longer sold well. In Space Panic, you played as an astronaut trying to survive in mazes full of aliens, using only your wits, a shovel, and a passion for digging. You do not get a prize for guessing that the digging part was inspired by Heian Kyo Alien.
However, Space Panic offered a different perspective on the action. Instead of a flat overhead maze grid, the stages in this game were vertical maze grids, with several floors connected by ladders. I don't know what prompted this change. Maybe it happened because even in games with a top-down perspective, developers kept drawing people as seen from the side, so a full side view was more natural, or maybe someone at Universal was a fan of Snakes and Ladders or Moksha Patam. This is the most obscure period of the Japanese arcade industry, and Universal developers haven't been grilled enough by interviewers. Whatever it was, Kazutoshi Ueda and his team made a game where several floors on the screen were connected by ladders. So how did Space Panic play? Each stage had a population of alien monsters the player had to get rid of. They moved randomly on the floors and sometimes went up and down the ladders. The player controlled an astronaut with a shovel and could press a button to dig. One or two hits of the shovel created a shallow hole that briefly delayed the enemies who moved into it, then they got out and the hole vanished. It could be useful for getting away since touching aliens killed the astronaut. To take the aliens out, you needed to hit the floor three times to create a through hole. An alien stepping into one of those got stuck really well, and then you pressed the other button to bonk the alien on the head with the shovel, and three hits would hammer the creature through the hole down to the floor below. That eliminated basic enemies and earned you points. However, there were more advanced aliens, for whom you had to dig holes through two or three floors below one another, because a one-floor drop wasn't enough. Alternatively, you could bonk an enemy into another enemy stuck in a hole directly below to take out both of them, or, if your timing was perfect, bonk one alien into another simply walking on a lower floor minding its own business. Also, you could walk your astronaut into those through holes to fall down to the lower floor in case you got cornered. So there were different styles of play you could try out, and the game absolutely took advantage of its verticality. It wasn't just a maze on its side, gravity played a key role. Naturally, the levels had a time limit too, and it's one of the cutest time limits I've ever seen. At the bottom of the screen, there was a digital readout of the oxygen supply your astronaut had remaining, ticking down. When you beat a level, that figure was added to your score as a bonus. But you wouldn't be looking at the readout while playing. It was easier to track your oxygen by the shrinking yellow bar at the top of the screen. And if you let the air run out, you did not die immediately. Universal's developers were smarter than Richard Garriott, whose characters dropped dead the moment their feedback ran empty. In Space Panic, once the yellow bar disappeared, the game switched to the much shorter red bar, and further to highlight that you were literally on your last breath, an alarm buzzer sounded, and the face of your astronaut sprite turned bright red. But you could still move, dig, and bonk a bit slower, but if there was only one monster remaining, you might still beat the level. It's like what Defender would have by the end of 1980. Instead of killing you outright, they gave you one last tiny chance. When Space Panic came out in Japan, the game was noticed, well-liked, and hovered not far from the snowy tops of the charts. In the West, however, you will see Space Panic described as obscure, but definitely not obscure enough. It would be one of the earlier ColecoVision titles, and in 81, an Apple II game, Apple Panic, programmed by a Ben Serkey, was published by Bruderbund. This must have been before Bruderbund started demanding more creativity from submissions. 
Apple Panic was literally space panic, only instead of an astronaut fighting aliens, you were a farmer battling bad apples running around. The oxygen timer remained. Even though the original game had just failed in the arcades, Apple Panic turned out to be one of Bruderband's bestsellers and generally a successful microcomputer game. Putting that thread aside for a moment, let's go back to the Japanese arcades and finally meet Nintendo's Donkey Kong, arriving in its natural habitat in 1981. That game about a stupid monkey that put Nintendo on the map. This, of course, brings us to another one of those awkward and all-too-frequent moments when I'm supposed to introduce a game doing something never done before, and it's best described as a twist on a few old ideas. The core component of Donkey Kong stages were a series of platforms connected by ladders, like in Space Panic, and each stage had a time limit in the form of a bonus point counter ticking down to your death. Now, the official story here is that Shigeru Miyamoto was inspired by a Popeye the Sailor cartoon, A Dream Walking. And having watched all seven minutes of it, I can report that the short does feature many elements that made it into Donkey Kong. It takes place at a construction site with scaffolding, narrow beams, suspended girders, elevators. You can see the influence. There's just one thing missing in the cartoon. Ladders. There's one on the water tower in the background for a second, there are stairs, but ladders present in each of the four Donkey Kong stages are just not a thing in the dreamwalking. Officially, the answer to whether Nintendo borrowed Space Panic is... Space Panic? What's a Space Panic? But you know, with how Gunpei Yokoi kept forgetting to mention the Microvision as an inspiration for the Game & Watch, I'm having trust issues here. Admitting influence could have made things legally awkward, given how much Nintendo sued people over copying Donkey Kong. And it would have been extra funny had Nintendo got sued not only by Universal Studios in America, but also by Universal Company in Japan. In addition to being sued by Kigami Tsushinki, I mean. You can see why everyone involved would want to keep their mouths shut. Now, I'm not saying that Miyamoto had never seen a ladder in his life, but I personally think that it's plausible that Donkey Kong started off as a space panic loan, and things got layered on top later, Synap Software style. I think so because A. Space Panic was a fun game and popular in Japan, B. Yamauchi, the boss of Nintendo, had said himself in 79 that borrowing game ideas was good for the industry, and C. The development was a rush job to save the boss's failed son-in-law who had blown all the money of the American branch on the fanciest offices in New York and 3,000 radoscope cabinets no one wanted to buy from him. They needed a game fast, and as Eugene Jarvis from last time can attest, it's easier to start with something already on the screen, setting a direction. Space Panic and the Popeye the Sailor cartoon blended perfectly. Both featured lots of vertical movement by different means. But Shigeru Miyamoto added new obstacles into the mix, so where Space Panic could only offer players several ladder layouts, Donkey Kong had four stages, each unlike the other three. The first and most famous stage is the one where the player's character, Jumpman, soon to be Mario, had to reach the titular gorilla, Donkey Kong, at the top of a series of platforms. And this is where the game may be taking an open jab at Space Panic. In the opening cutscene, as Donkey Kong is climbing to the top with kidnapped Pauline under his arm, the screen looks just like the levels of Space Panic, a few horizontal floors connected by ladders. But then the ape starts jumping up and down and stomping his feet, 
breaking some of the ladders and the walkways, turning those into ramps. Forget the old game, we're breaking all the rules. Jumpman had no shovel and could not dig, but he could, well, jump. And just like in most 70s games, he would be jumping over dangerous things to avoid them. Sadly, Mario's jumping was not refined yet. The speed and height control of some of the earlier games wasn't there. You kinda jumped in place, or left, or right, and hoped that the arc of the jump would take you over the danger. Donkey Kong was in a foul mode and kept tossing barrels that rolled sometimes following the ramps and sometimes falling down the ladders. Occasionally, Donkey Kong's missiles would also hit a metal barrel with some oil at the bottom of the stage, setting the oil on fire, foreshadowing the video game crash, and spawning a cute fireball to roam at the bottom. The barrels were a more widespread and seemingly inanimate threat, but their behavior was governed by a tricky algorithm that sometimes reacted to players' control inputs for that extra element of nasty surprise. The only way to eliminate the threats separating Mario from his love interest was a very Pac-Man-styled power-up item, the hammer. You had to jump to pick it up, and then Mario would just start swinging for a while, annihilating all enemies he ran into. The catch with the hammer was that until it wore off, Mario could neither jump nor climb ladders, so it actively prevented the player from progressing through the level. Sure, you got points, but you could get points by jumping over enemies, and the bonus timer kept ticking down while you were hammering away too. If you were good at Donkey Kong and cycled through all the stages a few times, the game would speed up to the point when the hammer was a threat rather than a bonus. Once Mario reached the top, another cutscene would play of Donkey Kong grabbing Pauline and climbing to the next stage. Here there were variants. In the American version of the cabinet, the sequence and number of stages in a single game cycle depended on what cycle it was, with the game gradually increasing in complexity, and the Japanese version would offer the full experience from the start. So the American players, for whom the game was made, would first advance from the ramps straight to the fourth stage of the cycle, where Mario had to take out Donkey Kong by running over a bunch of yellow rivets holding the level structure together. While evading very animate and determined balls of fire, and maybe picking up Pauline's lost umbrella for extra points. But completing the main task left huge gaps in the platforms where rivets had been, and they had to be jumped over. Because of a big difference between Mario and the protagonist of Space Panic. Mario died falling from great heights. This was a touch of realism added by Shigeru Miyamoto. Donkey Kong in general made a surprising amount of sense, since setting it on beams, girders and scaffolding eliminated possible questions of why can't this dude just step aside to let the barrels pass? While I was talking, Mario has removed all the rivets and the central part of the stage has collapsed, taking Donkey Kong with it. Mario is reunited with Pauline. Unlike Scramble, this game didn't tease you with an ending somewhere far, far ahead. But this is an arcade cabinet, so the story starts anew with a faster bonus timer. And this time, after negotiating the ramps, players advanced into stage 3. Here, Donkey Kong's projectiles, springs, were more predictable, though required tight timing to dodge. The main feature of the level was an elevator going up and one going down, and you had to take both. There were two spots to get off the second elevator, and one clearly saved you a lot of time, but you had to jump over a long gap over a very long drop, so it was riskier too. This stage also introduced players to more bonus items, Pauline's hat, purse and umbrella. Yes, Pauline had two umbrellas. 
On the third cycle through the game, players would finally get to see Stage 2, with its main feature, Horizontal Conveyor Belt. There were three of them, the direction they rolled in changed, and of course they had a small population of fireballs and random junk for Mario to avoid. This stage also had a couple of bonus items to collect, another hat and umbrella. So on that day, Pauline was taking a walk with one purse, two hats and three umbrellas. Very upper middle class. So this was Donkey Kong as it came out out of nowhere in the summer of 1981. Even if its development had started with cloning Space Panic, the premise of that game was taken into a new direction. Many directions even. Just a few years earlier, you could have realistically presented the four stages of Donkey Kong as a series of games, each housed in its own cabinet, and they probably would have enjoyed some success. Here it all arrived in one package, and Ikigami Tsushinki programmers might have thought this Miyamoto artist from Nintendo was impossible. He wants conveyor belts and elevators and ramps and the level falling apart in cutscenes? Who does that? Well, after the runaway success of Donkey Kong, many wanted to. But in the early weeks, as industry professionals in development and marketing were looking at the people lining up to the cabinets, no one, Nintendo included, was quite sure why Donkey Kong was popular. And then somebody must have turned to the others and said, Is it about... the monkey? It wasn't just the jumping that felt new. Monkeys and apes had not been making many appearances in games about aliens and spaceships and cars and ghosts. Maybe the industry needed more monkey games. That's possibly what a team at Konami was thinking as they were putting finishing touches on Amidar. Amidar, released in the autumn of 81, is a very strange game combining so many elements, it's almost like they threw everything at the wall to see what would stick. First of all, it was a Pac-Man-like dot-collecting game, but drawn as if you were moving on a vertical web of vines chased by the cops and your character was a big gorilla, or a paint roller chased by pigs in every other level, which may have been the original theme of the game. The grid of vines and enemy movement patterns were inspired by what Japan calls Amida Kuji, but the principle is well known in China and Korea too. It's a sort of a lot drawing mechanism. You draw some vertical lines, and then some horizontal bars connecting adjacent verticals. Put some prizes or something at the bottom of the lines, and let a person pick a top end without seeing the whole grid. Then follow that line from the top down, but every time you reach a horizontal bar, you have to take it and switch to the connecting line, and keep going down. Eventually, you reach the end of whatever line you ended up on, and determine a random prize. Amidar may have been the first to bring this bit of community fun into video games, and Amidakuji hasn't left. You can still see this lottery as a minigame where you have to pick one of the starting points fast. But wait, Amidar also had similarities to a space-claiming action puzzle game, Kix, released by Taito almost at the same time, so there may have been a common source of inspiration. Kix is another game for a future puzzle episode, but in Amidar, whenever you ate all the dots or painted all the lines around a block on the grid, you claimed it and got points. And if you claimed the four corner blocks, you got a temporary power-up, letting you knock the enemies off the grid, and they would fall down to the bottom of the screen. Going back to the subject of this episode, Amidar had a jump button too. And it's one of the weirdest jump buttons I've seen in games. I mean, what do we all expect a jump button to do? Make your character jump, right? Well, in Amidar, it doesn't. It's a very powerful ability, and you get to use it only a few times per level, 
and its effect is more like when a pinball player slams the table to dislodge a stuck ball. The jump button makes all the enemies on the screen jump. They stay like that for a second, frozen in place, and then they fall back onto the grid and continue their movement. But you can use this to run away, or run under an airborne enemy to move past them and also get away. So, Konami developers ignored nearly a full decade of the jump button tradition, and their daring did not go unnoticed. Amidar was reasonably popular, got a port to the Atari VCS featuring a smug-looking gorilla on the cover, and naturally there were clones of Amidar too. Continuing with oddities, late in 81, an Alpha Denshi Corporation in Japan presented to the world its cabinet Jump Bug. It was mostly a scramble clone, a shooter with forced horizontal scrolling, but instead of a rocket with a cannon, you controlled an animate car with a cannon, and the car couldn't stop jumping. You had to use the joysticks to guide the hopping car onto elevated platforms like the roofs of shops and cafes, or clouds, to collect bags of cash for points, and as the introductory screen said, avoid loss of car by evading enemies, missiles, and erupting volcanoes. End quote. Zany premise aside, Jump Bug seems to be mentioned online almost exclusively as the first game to feature parallax scrolling, which I think is massively underselling it. When I saw a video of it in action, I had to start it up in an online emulator and actually play it. Jump Bug may be one of the earliest jumping games to give the player aerial control. Up until this point, whenever you jumped in a game, you committed to the arc of the jump the moment you left the ground. You could play with your speed or height settings, jump in place, but once you pressed that button, you were in wait and see mode until the landing. Unless you were playing frogs where you still had to shoot your tongue. In Jump Bug, this style of control would not work, because the car jumped by itself the moment it touched the ground. So the developers gave the car rocket engines for mid-air jump adjustment. Tilting the joystick left and right, you move the car left and right on the screen to land on narrow safe spaces and not on the heads of various aliens. Tilting the stick up boosted the car's jump height or made it descend slower, almost gliding. Joystick down reduced jump height or made you fall down like a rock. It sounds awkward, especially with the non-stop jumping and scrolling, but you get used to it very quickly. Just like Scramble, Jump Bug offered a looping sequence of stages. You started in a city where you could hop between the roofs of buildings with huge signs saying Hotel, Cafe, Store or Joker. That was a warning that a hard-to-get Joker enemy would appear in a moment. They were worth a lot of points. After the city, you would enter a plane where there were plenty of moneyed clouds to hop on at the top and occasional big rocks and clusters of enemies at the bottom. After that, you entered a hilly area where small bumps on the ground developed into bigger mountains with occasional volcanic eruptions. Then you drive into a pyramid, tumble down the stairs, and the forced scrolling stops, but not the jumping. You have to get out of this dungeon, and the game even tells you how. A small arrow with the caption EXIT appears on the screen, pointing up, and it's not a part of the background. This arrow is drawn over all game objects and remains in the same position on the screen until you escape. It keeps reminding you, hey listen, the way out is up, and I find it an extremely advanced concept for the day. There weren't that many games in the arcades with levels big enough to get lost in in the first place, they tended to be linear, and if they were not, like Rally X, the go-to solution was a minimap. And in Jump Bug you got this navigational arrow helping you get your bearings. 
So you start hopping to the top of the pyramid, dodging not aliens, but evil spirits and bats. So many bats. The bags of gold here were cursed and got replaced by deadly skulls after you picked them up. The screen scrolled vertically and horizontally following your car as you bounced left and right between the platforms inside the pyramid. Strangely, your car could not turn around, so you were still restricted to shooting right. A major inconvenience since the exit was up and to the left. Maybe you'd better give up on all those bags of gold and take the shortcut. A stream of steam or water occasionally shooting up a big shaft in the middle of the structure. You could ride it all the way to the top. Then, forced scrolling resumed, and after a short open area, you would drive into... a sea. It turned out your car worked fine even underwater. At the bottom there were hills, sacks of cash and enemies and volcanoes, and you had to be careful with the jumps because of all the jellyfish with their long tentacles near the surface. You could hop out of the water to collect cash on a tropical island, but carefully because the birds were also out to get you. Then you'd advance into an underwater cave with enemy submarines shooting at you, and then some magical elevator would eject your car out of the water, and the next stage took place above the sea surface, where there were plenty of clouds for you to jump on. Then came the final stage, and there was neither a boss to defeat nor booty to steal. But it was very clever. The bright floor of this stage had arrows pointing at it, and the moment you touched it, the loop ended and you returned back to the city for the second cycle. You did not want it though, because in the air there were clouds with sacks of cash worth extra points. Ideally you'd want to get some of those instead of ending the cycle prematurely. It's kinda like the floor is lava, but the sky is money. Also throughout the whole game, collecting a certain number of sacks awarded you with an extra life. This final challenge, along with all the other stages in Jump Bug, reveals that its designers were fully aware of the core principle of the upper path and the lower path. The upper path is where the goodies are, the lower path is where the losers are. It's only natural, gravity pulls you down, and it takes more effort to jump between narrow platforms to stay in the upper part of the level, so it showers you with sacks of money. If you fail, you fall to the floor of the stage, where there's nothing apart from occasional enemies. You hop along the floor as in the mountains above, diamonds are whooshing by. And the way the levels and the jumping are set up, you cannot just reach the tops from all the way down below. You need to get onto intermediate height platforms first. This level structure would appear in scrolling jumping games for decades to come. And here, Alpha Denshi developers had it figured out only a few months after Donkey Kong. Of course, the Wikipedia page for Jump Bug only tells you that it had a jumping car and parallax scrolling. Also, that it was the 14th highest grossing arcade video game of 1981, which I doubted given the quality of the rest of the entry, so I followed the link to read the source. And yeah, Wikipedia lies. The cited video game chart was compiled early in 82 by a Japanese magazine, Game Machine, which had an ad for Jump Bug, and mercifully, a section for foreign readers in English. According to the article there, the ranking was based on an annual survey of over 120 Japanese arcade operators. And the question was, what were your top three arcade machine money earners for the past year? Meaning that this is not a chart of cabinet sales or coin box stakes specifically, but of the top three cabinets according to various operators, and it doesn't seem to take their business size into account. That's not ideal. At the same time, it means every game on the list was in a top three most popular cabinet somewhere. 
good for them. Since we know many of the games in the chart, let's examine it. What did Japan like to play in the arcades by the start of 82? Sitting at the top was, of course, Donkey Kong. Number 2 was taken by a Mahjong game with a computer opponent, and the magazine helpfully points out that Japan loves Mahjong, but it's hard to explain to foreigners, which is fair. Number 3 is a game from Data East and the most popular title available for the Deco cassette system, Pro Golf. Pac-Man? Sorry, you're number 4. Kicks, I mentioned today, is number 5. Then come a couple of space games from Namco, Galaga, a classic fixed-screen shoot-em-up, and Bosconian. 8 is Crazy Climber, the 1980 game about climbing a tall building using two joysticks to control your arms. When you reach the top, you have to time your last pull right to grab the skids of a helicopter and fly to another building. Number 9 is another game developed by Alpha Denshi, Crush Roller, a maze game where you need to repaint the maze while avoiding enemies. It's similar to Amidar's roller levels and was released at around the same time. A speed race-like game, Grand Champion from Taito, takes number 10. 11 is River Patrol, a scrolling game about rescuing people in a boat. I'll tell you about number 12 in a moment, while 13 is a Mahjong game by Data East. Finally, we arrive at the 14th place, which is shared by Jump Bug, Scramble, Space Panic, and yet another Mahjong game. According to Game Machine, Japanese businessmen liked video mahjong cabinets that much. The chart concludes with the 18th place shared by Defender, Namco's classic Galaxian, and Turbo, a third-person view racing game and the only title in the chart developed by Sega. It's easy to see why Sega would start thinking of the console market. Unfortunately for it, Nintendo, with its only game at the opposite end of the chart, would also start working on a new console. Anyway, number 12 on the list was taken by Frogger from Konami. The game came to be because Konami developer Akira Hashimoto once saw Frog trying to cross a road but unable to because of all the traffic. So he helped the Frog across and realized he could make a game based on the story. Since the game featured a hopping protagonist, let's see what it's all about. Frogger was a really good implementation of the idea that had been kicking around video games since that space race Atari hacked together as its second game project. Cross the screen, avoiding obstacles, moving across your path. That's it. Of course, nearly a decade of hardware and game design evolution brought some improvements. Frogger had sound effects, colors, and way more variety. The bottom half of the screen was taken up by a top-down view of a somewhat unusual five-lane road where various cars moved left or right with gaps between them. This was really close to Space Race, except unlike a rocket, your frog could hop left and right too. Once the frog crossed the road, it faced off against Mother Nature, in the form of a small river filling the rest of the screen. Now, in Frogs from 1978, when your frog fell off the lily pad into water, you wasted some time waiting for the frog to reappear on the pad, implying that the frog had to swim back to it. In Frogger, if you jumped into the waters of that river, you died. So you had to hop between floating logs and the backs of turtles, but the logs were moving, while the turtles weren't being paid to service platforms and would occasionally dive. If you managed to brave all those dangers, you could hop onto one of the five homes at the top of the screen, and repeat the journey with another frog. Naturally, the home you'd just taken would be occupied, so with every frog you had to be more and more precise in planning your movement. 
But that was only a minor part of how Frogger ramped up its difficulty. Every time you filled all five homes with frogs, you advanced to the next stage, and with each stage, more and more wildlife would start appearing in the river. Alligators would replace some logs and gladly snack on any frog that hopped into their mouth. Stay away from the mouth end? Easy to say, there are also otters who can snatch a frog sitting near any edge. Then there are snakes who sometimes slither back and forth on top of logs and sometimes appear on the bank. And to make it all worse, sometimes when you're about to hop into a home, a hungry gator pops up in its place with its mouth wide open and you have to wait. But you can't just wait, because everything on the river is in constant motion, so you need to move away and come back and watch out for that timer ticking down. Frogger was first presented in Japan early in 81 and released properly in the summer, which placed the little frog in the big and hairy shadow of Donkey Kong. Back in the day, the two games were even compared. Even though gravity played no part in Frogger, both cabinets had the players dodging obstacles on the way to the top of the screen. Nintendo's Gorilla was faster to climb to the top of the charts, but as we've seen today, Frogger also made it into the spotlight and enjoyed a glowing following. At that time, Konami was still new to its games being in demand in the arcades, so it needed help with production and distribution, and it got that help from Sega. As a result, any American release of Frogger would be up to Sega's American branch, Gremlin Industries, the world's leading expert on video games about frogs. And Frogs most likely had not done so well in the arcades, because Gremlin management looked at Frogger and said it was too cute, primitive, and bringing the game to the United States would be a waste of time. But there was a dissenting opinion in the marketing department, where Elizabeth Falconer stumbled upon Frogger in the library of stuff Gremlin had the rights to. She asked why they weren't doing it, heard the reasoning, realized it was a big mistake, rolled up his sleeves and went off to argue with the management. And she argued all the way to the top, not of Gremlin, nor of Sega, but of Paramount that owned Sega at the time. And Elizabeth Falconer reminded the executives that less than a year prior they had dismissed Pac-Man as too cute, at that trade show I talked about last time. And Pac-Man turned out to be the number one arcade moneymaker up until Donkey Kong crashed onto the scene. Surprised and embarrassed, the management relented and allowed a short trial run for Frogger. Let's put a few test units out there and see what feedback we get. And the feedback from operators was mostly, when are you sending us more? It's awesome, people can't get enough of it. And this is how three years after Frogs, Gremlin Industries got even Frogger. And the game's popularity kept growing since it offered something for everyone, including people who hadn't seen much of interest in the arcades before. Frogger was neither a shooter nor a maze game, something different. You didn't attack anyone. The game was cute and colorful and had frogs in it. Turns out Lane Hauk was right in 78. It's just that his game wasn't that exciting. The controls of Frogger were dead simple, just one joystick for four-way movement, so almost anyone could play. And yet, if you were one of those Defender fans and wanted your games hard, Frogger ramped up the difficulty very fast, so high scores were something you had to work for. Seeing the success of the cabinet, Parker Brothers swooped in and got the license to release Frogger on the Atari VCS. The port, programmed by Ed English, was released in the summer of 82, and apparently sold 4 million copies in its first year. To distributors. I think this detail is important to point out in the run-up to the crash. In the good days, Ed English got a royal treatment for his work, and was driven around in a limo with company executives. 
With this, after the breakthrough year of 81, we move on to 82. Surprised by Donkey Kong's success more than anybody else, Nintendo started quietly milking the monkey. This year, it released Donkey Kong Jr., the very first video game cabinet Nintendo developed entirely by itself. If we ignore the outside contractors, hired to reverse-engineer the original Donkey Kong to steal Ikigami Tsushinki's programming. Baby steps. The premise of the new game was that Mario had successfully rescued his posh three-umbrella girlfriend from the clutches of the angry gorilla, and then imprisoned him in a tiny cage. Now it was up to Donkey Kong's son to rescue his dad from the clutches of Angry Mario, the villain of this story. This was extremely unusual for arcades, where stories were still rare in general, and a sequel continuing the plot of an earlier game was unheard of. But Shigeru Miyamoto liked stories, and his first had brought the company fame and fortune, so they let him do another one. Donkey Kong Jr. retained the four-stage structure, and again, in the American version, players were spoon-fed new areas over several game cycles. The stages were full of new things to jump and climb on. There was a springboard that boosted your jumps in one place, but the main novelty were vertical vines and chains. Junior could not only climb up and down on them, but also hang off one side and transfer between adjacent vines. That was handy for avoiding new enemies, angry snakes and angry birds. Also, Mario was not a good electrician, so his hideout stage had electric sparks. Enemies moving in circles, following the outlines of platforms. At a glance, Junior had no weapons, no hammer, no shovel, but there were bonus items scattered here and there, various fruit to collect for points. And when Junior touched a fruit, it fell to the bottom of the screen and eliminated any enemy it hit on the way, earning you extra points. The classic mechanic from Space and Apple Panic was back. Donkey Kong Jr. was released in the summer of 82, and a few months later came a licensed Popeye cabinet with lots of running around, climbing, avoiding enemies, and getting supercharged by spinach. Nintendo was expanding its emerging line of... You know, this kind of game was still so new it didn't have an established name yet. But thanks to all the jumping and climbing, the Japanese audience and industry started calling them athletic games. While Donkey Kong Jr. was indeed a valuable learning exercise for video game developers at Nintendo and a fun popular cabinet, the sequel did not succeed beyond expectations the same way the original had. Jumping was coming to microcomputers too. In the autumn of 82, users of nearly every popular micro of the day got the opportunity to play the latest release by Big 5 Software. Big 5 Software, as the name helpfully indicates, was founded by and consisted of two guys, Bill Hogue and Jeff Conyu. The company had made a name for itself in the prior couple of years by releasing clones of arcade hits on the TRS-80. TRS-80 users were very happy about it. But then Tandy decided to discontinue the original TRS-80 line, presumably trying to replace it by the fully incompatible TRS-80 color computer. Faced with a need to master a new system, the Big Five software duo looked around and realized that there were other options, like the Apple II and Atari 8-bit systems. So their new game, Donkey Kong-inspired Miner 2049er, came out on anything but a Tandy computer. Sorry, old fans. For its time, Miner 2049er was enormous. In the arcades, Donkey Kong had four stages. Its official Atari 2600 port had only two stages. 
Minor 2049er had 10, and they were full of wonderful things. The first stage was a classic ramps and ladders affair to ease players in. Then they saw slides, and if you stepped on one, you would, well, slide to the bottom. Then came teleporters, allowing you to move instantly between a few points in the stage. Then Minor 2049er gradually ratcheted up required jump precision and introduced platforms sliding back and forth horizontally. Then a gauntlet of four presses you had to run under. For the final challenge, you had to fire your character, Bounty Bob, out of a cannon, repeatedly. It was the only way to reach some elevated platforms, and you controlled the height of the cannon launch by picking up TNT charges, and you could pick up so many, the cannon would fire you so high that on the way down you'd die hitting the ground. Minor 2049er was an entertaining title and very impressive thanks to its sheer amount of content, though its stage objectives were always the same. Walk on every tile of every platform, and they changed color slightly when you did, so again you were repainting the level. Another one of those short-lived early 80s software publishers, Datamost, released a curious oddity for the Apple II in 82, Aztec by Paul Stevenson. I'm going to save most of the talk about Aztec until a dedicated action-adventure episode, though, because this game featured a procedurally generated vertical maze many screens wide and deep, and in it you'd find traps, enemies, weapons, and even dynamite you could use to blow up walls and create new paths. What's worth pointing out today is that Aztec had an intermediate stage between harmlessly falling from a small height and falling to your death from a great height. You could get briefly knocked out by a rough landing from a medium height. Aztec may have been unforgettable to those who played it, but in 1982 the big video game industry was still going strong and console releases eclipsed microcomputer titles. The biggest jumping event of 82 was organized on the Atari 2600 by Activision, which published David Crane's Pitfall. Crane had been thinking of a game with an animated person character pretty much since the first days of Activision, because tanks and jets and rockets were boring. He made a small moving figure appear on the Atari VCS, but there was no game. Then, one day, David told himself to sit down and do it finally, and according to him it only took about 10-15 minutes. Start with the running stickman. He had to run on the path. Where? In the jungle. Why? He's looting, uh, pardon, looking for treasure, avoiding threats like pits, and you'd see it from the side with some perspective, like in the cutaway view. Then Crane decided to throw in an underground river at the bottom of the screen that lets you advance faster, but it had a scorpion in it you had to avoid, and on top there were crocodiles you could hop on, carefully, to cross lakes, or if there were no crocodiles, you could swing on vines. David Crane has told this story many, many times, and he's perfected it, and it's a bit annoying because he focuses on that flash of inspiration and what a pain the Atari VCS was to work with to make the game look great, saying very little about the sources of his ideas. The crocodile head-hopping was inspired by a cartoon series, The Heckle and Jekyll Show, and the treasure-hunting theme came from the Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he was drafting his game in 81. Did Frogger or Donkey Kong play any role in David's decision finally to sit down and make a game about a dude jumping over things? The working title of the project was Jungle Runner, but Activision Marketing said, no, we need a better name. Crane had to think harder, and so it came out in the summer of 82 as Pitfall, starring Pitfall Harry. It tasked players with collecting 32 treasures scattered across the game's world within 20 minutes. This was different. 
I mean, what is there to do for 20 minutes straight in an Atari 2600 game? And in Pitfall it's a time... limit? Implying it might not be enough? Indeed, the world of Pitfall was composed of 255 screens, connected all together side by side into a massive loop. If you crossed the edge of the screen at a ground level, you advanced a screen, and if you traveled on the underground river, you moved three screens at once. You had to use the river if you wanted to get all the treasures in time, but scorpions were an ever-present threat, and sometimes the river was walled up so you had to backtrack to the nearest ladder to the surface and go around the wall. There, in addition to all the pits and the crocodiles, you could run into deadly rolling logs. A single one could be easily jumped over, but when they came in twos one after another, you had to master the art of jumping in place. This reminds me of the two small obstacles in Tommy's Digital Daredevil from 1981. The industry is figuring out jumping. Even with three lives to spare, players were unlikely to beat Pitfall on the first try. Fortunately, as huge and procedurally generated as the world was, it always remained the same. David Crane thinks he was being very original, but through slightly different technical means, he used the exact same trick we've already met in Telengard. Each of the 255 rooms was assigned a unique pseudo-random 8-bit number, and the state of certain sets of bits determined what the screen's background would look like, what dangers it offered on the surface, and the underground river situation. Obviously, David made sure that even the most complicated confluence of obstacles was still beatable. Also, he picked the starting screen for the game, choosing a boring safe spot, moving away from which players got gradually introduced to the jumping mechanics and the threats. So, the game was easy to pick up and play. And pick it up, people did. Pitfall is in the top 5 of best-selling Atari 2600 cards of all time, and the top-selling console original, not an arcade port. And unlike some of those ports, Pitfall did not just sell really well for a short while. It kept staying at the top of the best Atari 2600 cartridges lists for more than a year, according to Crane. There was an official board game made, and even an animated TV show. Pitfall was huge. But it wasn't the only game released that year, featuring swinging on vines, yelling like Tarzan. Taito released The Jungle King Cabinet, telling a four-stage scrolling story of someone looking and sounding like Tarzan, running to the left, oddly enough, to save a girl from cannibals. When Tarzan's lawyers showed up, Taito had to replace Tarzan with a pith-helmeted explorer and rename the game to Jungle Hunt. The stages involved swinging on vines and then swimming through a crocodile-infested river where the action took place mostly underwater, but Tarzan, sorry, Explorer, had to surface to replenish his draining oxygen meter. Then you hopped uphill over and under boulders rolling downhill and finally jumped over some cannibals to rescue the girl hanging over a boiling pot. Then you did it again, with more crocodiles and cannibals. A strange but influential merger of digging, gravity and mazes got released in 82 by Namco, Dig Dug. The game was designed by Masahisa Ikigami and developed by a small team trying to craft a more open maze game. Sounds like a paradox, but why not let the player dig a maze? So the game's main character, Taizo Hori, would set out underground on a campaign to take out some pests invading a garden. The pests came in two varieties, Puka and Figar, with the first being a small ball with goggles, and the second being 
a fire-breathing dragon. No middle ground. They would start trapped in short tunnels Taizu could dig to to kill the pests with inflation. No, not the fantasy zone kind of inflation. You were armed with an air pump that could shoot out a hose forward, and if it hit an enemy creature, you could tap the button some more to inflate the target until it popped. Brutal. And also reminding me of tapping the button to bury or bonk enemies in a few earlier games. Naturally, the creatures wouldn't just wait for you to come after them. If left alone, they would escape their tunnels and move to the one you were in, better prepare. Your deadliest weapon were rocks, and this is where the gravity came in. If you dug out the ground under boulders scattered around the stages, the rocks would wiggle for a moment, letting you get away, and then come crashing down, instantly taking out every pest in their path. Released early in 82, Dig Dug was another success for Namco, had sequels, and was actively cloned and expanded on. For example, six months later, Taito unleashed its Mr. Door, designed at Universal by Kazutoshi Ueda, the planner of Space Panic. The management literally told him to clone Dig Dug, but naturally he added something extra, like arming the main character, a clown, with a bouncy ball, and giving the players three different ways to finish a stage. And Mr. Door also was a successful game. Meanwhile, Irem picked up Jump Bug's banner, a vehicle-based scrolling, jumping, shooting action with Moon Patrol, designed by Takashi Nishiyama. You played as a space cop driving a space buggy across space terrain, and your buggy was armed with cannons firing both straight up and straight to the right. One was good for spacecraft appearing in the skies above, and the other took care of space tanks, space plants, space rocks, and space boulders in your way. What the cannon could not help with were good old landmines and massive pits in the ground. You had to jump over these, and the distance you would clear depended on the buggy's speed you controlled with a joystick. And you'd need to get really good at pit jumps, because one of the flying enemy types was armed with bombs so powerful they blew massive holes in the ground right ahead of you. Moon Patrol was very enjoyable and looked really nice because of its retro sci-fi look and newfangled parallax scrolling. Still, it seems the game was more popular in the West than in Japan. Atari released a multitude of console and microports, while the American release of the cabinet itself was handled by Williams Electronics. Speaking of... After the success of Defender, Williams Electronics decided to expand its video game operations and hired more people. One of the newcomers was John Newcomer, coming from the toy industry, where he'd been mentored by the designer of the Mousetrap board game and other stuff. He didn't know much about programming, but Williams had the people to help with that, and the art, and the sound. John Newcomer was another member of the Pure Designer Club. His idea was to make something about flying, the eternal dream of mankind. But there were plenty of flying games with planes and rockets and helicopters out there, and he wanted something different. So he went with birds. But most birds look goofy when they're on the ground, so newcomers settled on flying ostriches. There would be riders with lances on these ostriches, and they would be jousting, and that's the name of the game. Joust. The controls were fairly simple, a two-directional joystick and a wing flap button. To fly and control your altitude, you had to work out a rhythm for your flaps and get a feel for the gravity in the game, which was unusual. Your ostrich had inertia too, both in the air and on the ground, so movement in joust was very floaty and dreamlike. 
So was the game in general, as you rammed enemy ostrich riders and collected their eggs to prevent other ostriches from picking them up and bringing the riders back to life. The visual design of the stage could have been better, but the dry, rocky platforms arrangement could be slightly reconfigured for various types of levels. Say, in egg stages, the area got littered with eggs, and all the ones you'd fail to collect in time would turn into riders, so better hurry. Moreover, Joust had a two-player cooperative game mode, so you could take on enemy riders with your friend. It was a pragmatic addition. The management wanted cabinets earning 25 cents for every two and a half minutes. Any simultaneous multiplayer mode boosted the intake and won the developers more design space. The concept of cooperative arcade play was still kinda new at the time. We know that Hey Unk Your Alien had done it in 79, but in the West the concept was pioneered by Tim Skelly from Cinematronics. I've mentioned his Star Castle from 1980 in episode 3.1. Well, the same year, Skelly had another of his games released, Ripoff. It was a single-screen shooter in vector graphics, but this time you, or maybe two of you, were trying to prevent enemies from stealing fuel tanks piled up in the center of the screen. You could take out enemies as they were coming in, but you wouldn't have the time for all of them, and when you shot an enemy trying to sneak away with a tank, and they'd explode and leave the tank alone, Safe, but closer to the edge of the screen, and a prime target for the next wave of invaders. Ripoff has been ripped off hundreds of times by this point, as full games and as a mini-challenge in bigger games, but it was the cooperative play angle that got the industry's attention back in the early 80s, because it's double the money, and you can make the game harder so that loners lose faster, and it's still attractive to players who want to remain on speaking terms after leaving the arcade hall. Though the latter might not have been a concern, apparently there was an emerging difference in the co-op play culture between Japan and America. In Japan, you had to agree to play together beforehand. In the United States, a total stranger could drop into your game as you were already playing. And it wasn't weird. Maybe that's why, even though Japan had started it, co-op play would be more profitable and widespread in America. But only for a while. Japanese arcade operators had to start asking for co-op games after 1984, when a law forbade them to operate round the clock. It hurt their profits, and they needed games that could make more in less time. So Joust had the fresh cooperative play and a weird flappy bird theme, and when it came out in the summer of 82, it was both noticed by the industry and popular among players. In the autumn, though, it got some serious competition. Williams was not the only old pinball company dabbling in video games. All of them were, and the last one to get with the times was Gottlieb. It tested the market with a few licensed cabinets, and then, ignoring its pinball table creators, built up a separate small team of video game developers, mentored by guru Tim Skelly, formerly of Cinematronics. Hello again. Gottlieb considered its video games team so precious, they were not allowed to reveal their names to the world, or they might get hired by a better-paying company. Even when in 83 three of them got interviewed for a magazine, they were referred to exclusively by aliases D. Zeiner, J. Walkman, and R. Teast. In reality, they were programmer and designer Warren Davis, sound engineer David Thiel, and artist Jeff Lee. Put together, these three are the team responsible for Gottlieb's greatest video hit. Warren Davis joined Gottlieb around Christmas 81 answering a newspaper ad, 
and after a brief training period was told to go make a game. Then he happened to peek over the shoulder of his Gottlieb colleague, Kan Yabomoto, who was experimenting with an isometric pattern of cubes on the screen. And Davis thought that he could program things falling onto those cubes and bouncing randomly to the right or to the left onto a lower cube and so on. So Warren made a pyramid of cubes, asked Jeff Lee for a ball sprite and it worked and didn't look half bad, so they decided to put a player-controlled character into the scene. Lee already had a selection of potential character sprites raring to go, and Davis took a shine to a pathetic-looking one with a long nose. Apparently Jeff Lee's original idea for the character was that it would shoot something out of the nose, but Warren Davis didn't know how to program that. Now it would be just a nosy creature hopping between the cubes, trying not to jump off the pyramid while dodging the raining balls. At this point, Warren Davis was kinda out of ideas, but one of their managers, Ron Waxman, who liked to haunt developers' workroom while smoking a cigar, threw in a suggestion. Why don't you make the cubes change color when you jump on them? It turned out to be easy to implement, and the new objective of repainting the level fit the industry's trends. That's when the game clicked together, and everything else was being added to reinforce this basic gameplay model. There would be a coily snake chasing after the main character, but you could escape it by using flying discs hovering off the sides of the pyramid. There would be two little annoyances, Slick and Sam, trying to recolor the level when you weren't looking, and there would be enemies climbing the pyramid randomly instead of raining down. Wrong way and ugh. These two were suggested by Jeff Lee, as were most characters' names, except for the main one. Another idea came from a technician who suggested using one of the oldest coin-op sound effects, the pinball knocker, for when a character falls off the level. They tried it, and with the knock coming shortly after the unlucky sprite disappeared off the screen, the illusion that someone just fell into the depths of the cabinet was perfect. It could be better with a bit of foam to soften the thud, but the management didn't want to spend money on the extra labor. For other sounds, the gang had engineer David Thiel, and a soundboard Gottlieb used in its solid-state pinball tables, which contained a basic speech synthesis chip. Thiel hated it, but one day he came up with feeding random numbers into the chip, and that noise became the expletive for the moments when you lost a life to enemies. The sound was made even more suggestive by the speech bubble of nothing but punctuation popping up on the screen at the same time. Another manager, Howie Rubin, even suggested naming the game just that. They put the cabinet out for testing with the expletive bubble as the title on the marquee. Nice try, didn't work. They had to have a naming meeting. Exhausted, someone suggested Hubert. Someone else changed it to Cubert because of all the cubes. And finally, they worked out the zany spelling. Cubert tested well, was put into production already by the autumn of 82, and would become the most successful video game from Gottlieb, getting a cartoon show too. At the trade show that autumn, people even picked it as the best of the show over Nintendo's Popeye designed by Shigeru Miyamoto. But Nintendo's cabinet must have gotten as high as the second place thanks to a coincidental release of a Popeye film and sheer force of habit. Because as we're advancing into 1983, arcade-goers are already tired of Donkey Kong-like games. Yet some companies were still trying. Japanese Sun Electronics released its Arabian cabinet. A Donkey Kong Jr. clone themed around 1001 Nights. Jr.'s influence is visible in a four-stage story structure, all the vine climbing and attacking birds. 
Though the Arabian prince you controlled could hit enemies like Popeye and had to collect pots scattered about the level. The pots had letters on them, and if you collected them in the right order to spell Arabian, you got a bonus. The strangest thing about the game was the bizarre music selection in the Japanese version. Nothing says Arabian as much as a tune from William Tell Overture. We'll be running into Sun Electronics again when it starts making Famicom games under the label Sunsoft. Sega combined the isometric perspective of Zaxxon with Donkey Kong and Frogger and got Kongo Bongo. Or maybe it was not the Sega doing the combining, but Ikigami Tushinki, whose engineers developed the cabinet. And Donkey Kong? And Zaxxon? You played as yet another pith-helmeted explorer and chased after a gorilla. First you climbed some rocks, then you evaded snakes and hopped on a hippo's back to cross some water. The third stage had you dodging a herd of charging rhinos on a flat plain. And the final stage was straight up the river section of Frogger. Then you set the gorilla on fire and the game told you, Congratulations! Good! Or if you did extremely well, Very good! I wonder if the crew at Ikigami Tsushinki wanted to say something with this. As many Sega titles of this period, Congo Bongo was successful, but not the smash hit Sega needed. A pith helmet showed up in a game released in 1983 by Konami, too. Rock and Rope. It's another single-screen game, with no jumping, but with a twist. The twist was that instead of jumping, the player's character used a harpoon that fired at a set angle, and when it hit a rocky ledge, it created a rope you could climb. Not only your explorer could climb, though, so did the hairy cavemen populating the level, and if you were on the rope when they grabbed it, you fell off. But it worked the other way, too, so you could trick them onto a rope and kill them by shaking it. The goal of the game was to reach a precious golden bird at the top of the screen before the bonus timer ran out and killed you. The good old Miner 2049er had its fans too, and one of them, Matthew Smith in the UK, programmed Manic Miner, with 20 stages of jumping action and something previously unheard of on the platform. Literally, it had in-game music. And speaking of in the Hall of the Mountain King, CBS Electronics released something Pitfall-like titled Mountain King on various consoles and micros. It was single-handedly created by Robert W. Matson, but the publisher insisted on removing his name from the title screen, so Bob put an easter egg in. You are exploring a scrolling system of platforms and ladders the side of a mountain, searching for treasure with a time limit. What you wanted to find and bring back to the start to beat a level was the Golden Crown, but it was protected by an energy shield you could not pass through until you found the Flame Spirit, which was invisible. So you had to listen to its music where it got louder, watch out for a flicker of flame on the screen, and then shine your flashlight at it to make the spirit available for pickup. Then you got the crown and ran for the exit, pursued by the music and the time limit. There were enemies in the stages too, Warren Robinette-styled bats trying to steal your items, and a giant spider at the bottom of the cave that was potentially deadly, but started by trapping you in its web, and you had to break free by wiggling the joystick left and right. Another 1983 release was Hard Hat Mac by Michael Abbott and Matthew Alexander. 
This three-stage, construction-site-themed Kong-like game had two features that make it stand out. Firstly, one of the enemies in it is an Occupational Safety and Health Administration inspector, and a California state senator sent a complaint letter to a store selling the game for presenting OSHA people as the villains. The store removed the game and its ads, and then this scandalous instance of censorship and senators spending time on nonsense blew up in the press. Happy with free publicity, the company that published the game reported handsome sales and a 50-copy order from a construction firm to be used as prizes at a party. The second distinct feature of Hard Hat Mac is that it was the very first title published by Electronic Arts. Sports games with jumping kept appearing too. Konami released its Hyper Olympics, or track and field cabinet, in 83, with colorful animated characters doing long jumps, high jumps, and leaping over hurdles. The game was pretty infamous for its 100-meter dash event, where to run as fast as possible you had to alternate between pressing two buttons as fast as you could. Konami made you work for your gold. Also, in 84, a worldwide competition in track and field was organized in Japan and America, drawing something in the region of a million participants. Quite a step up from the first video game tournament held at Stanford 12 years earlier. Sillier sports games were coming out too. A Cosme company released Aztec Challenge for the Commodore 64, with seven events of jumping, running and avoiding certain doom in and around Aztec temples. The game was designed and programmed by composer Paul Norman, who got into game development in the 80s and enhanced his titles with nice original music. This Aztec Challenge was not the same as the Aztec Challenge programmed by a different guy Cosme had published in 82 for the Atari 8-bit systems. That one was an auto-scrolling jumping game like Steeplechase, with three jump heights to pick from. Of course, by now we know that in the microcomputer world, some of the best clones that aren't really clones can be found at the outfit run by one Ukrainian Buddhist counselor photographer. So what does Synapse Software have in store for us in 83? Well, there is the Pharaoh's Curse by Steve Coleman, but I'm putting this aside because it has some similarities to Aztec or Pitfall, and it's an action-adventure title. What I will talk about is Alley Cat. Apparently, the original prototype of the game was created by veteran hacker John Harris at Sierra Online, where he also programmed a really smooth Pac-Man clone, Jawbreaker, and the official Atari 8-bit port of Frogger. He made a one-screen prototype of some cat game, didn't know what else to do with it, and handed it to his friend Bill Williams at Synapse. And Bill made a classic. And then he wrote a manual full of cat puns. You are playing as Alley Cat Freddy, trying to get a date with a house cat Felicia living in a mouse-infested apartment building. Freddy started outside the building, at the bottom of the screen, in a dirty alley. You wanted to get off the ground fast, before a dog named Bowser ran into the scene, so you hopped onto one of the numerous garbage cans. But you couldn't stay there either, because there was Cat Fletcher inside those, and if he poked his head out, he knocked Freddy down to the ground and called Bowser. They had a deal. So you jumped further up to the fence, and that's when the windows of the three floors of the apartment block would start opening one at a time for someone to throw random trash in Freddy's direction. But if you managed to get into an open window by leaping between lines of washing, things got weird. Freddy would randomly enter one of five rooms. One featured an enormous cheese block populated by mice for you to catch. 
Another had an aquarium that was way bigger on the inside than on the outside, and housed tasty fishies and deadly electric eels, and you also had to swim to the surface once in a while for air. Another room was full of sleeping dogs with bowls of food in front of them, and you had to sneak around and eat all the food. Then there was a room where Freddy had to knock down three vases from the top of a bookcase, evading a big angry spider. And finally there was the most grounded room, where you knocked a birdcage off the table to let the bird out and then try to catch it. In all the rooms, as outside, you had to watch out for Bowser running across the bottom of the screen. But indoors you also had to deal with the mad housekeeping broom. She couldn't kill you, but could launch you straight into other threats, or right out the window you'd come in through. But you had a weapon against the broom. As a street cat, Freddy was so dirty that when he ran around the bottom of the screen, he left paw prints. They enraged the broom and she would start sweeping them away, leaving Freddy alone for a while. So Alley Cat kinda made sense in a surreal dream way. After you did your mischief in the room, you appeared back outside and saw Felicia in one of the windows. If Freddy reached it, he entered a bizarre Cupid room, where he had to jump to his love up several levels of heart platforms, dodging Felicia's six brothers, and watching out for Cupids whose arrows rearranged the platform layout. If you made it, Freddy got a loud kiss, an extra life, and woke up back in the alley for another round. Alley Cat was unusual for the time, in that it didn't really rely on precise jumping from platform to platform as a challenge. Freddy had claws, he could cling to the cheese, the bookshelves, the curtains, the clotheslines. The main challenge was reacting to the threats, balancing broom management with going for the main objective. And this is at the time when other developers are starting to get lazy and try to make their games appear more exciting or challenging by means of pixel-perfect jumps. Pixel-perfect jumps are one of the laziest things you can include in a jumping game. The recipe is simple. You take the maximum distance in pixels the player's character can jump, Add the width of the character sprite, or the hitbox you're using for platform collision detection, subtract a couple of pixels, and put a gap this wide into your stage. It's technically not impossible. And to the creator who's programmed and tested the physics, easily doable. A programmer slash designer without good playtesters might even think to add precise timing element to it, like you have to land on a moving platform or leap over a bird or something. None of the games that had this have aged well. Manic Miner may be amusing to watch, but not to play, unless you already have the muscle memory for its jumps from childhood. Alley Cat is considerably more approachable. There is a free Remeow edition out there. It would have been hard to fashion pixel-perfect jumps for Freddy anyway, because of his peculiar jump mechanics. Most of these games still used fixed jump arcs. You either hopped in place or jumped left or right, always following the same trajectory. But Freddy accelerated as he ran on the ground, and if he jumped immediately after setting in motion, he made a short hop. If you let him get up to speed first and then press jump, Freddy would dart across the entire screen and get extra height too. It's like this little cat was using the bike jumping physics. The original Atari 8-bit Alley Cat was nice and colorful, and then the game was noticed by IBM, which published a PC port, also programmed by Bill Williams. Colors had to be replaced by the CGA palette, the sound got worse, but as a compensation, the game now flashed comic book-style captions on the screen to let the players imagine good sound effects. Say, when Freddy got bonked by some trash thrown out a window, you'd literally see bonk on the screen before the cat disappeared behind the fence. IBM also released a PC Junior version, still in four colors. At least, this was slightly better colors. 
Alley Cat might have become a larger franchise, but around this time, Synapse Software ceased to exist. Although in 85, a clunky PC-88 port was released in Japan. For a microcomputer franchise that would actually stick around, we need to look at another 1983 game. A Return of Space Panic. The origin story of this one is kinda complicated. In 1980, one James Brett Sanus heard from a friend about an arcade cabinet. A game where you climbed ladders, dug holes, and dropped monsters in them. James didn't get to see the cabinet, but he liked the idea and programmed his own take on his high school Commodore pet, calling the game Suicide. Of course, a game where you played as a dude with a pickaxe, collecting gold in the tunnels and digging holes for local guards to fall into. Suicide. Since it was running on the pet, it had to use pseudographics, text characters. The following year, James Bratsanis brought the game with him to the University of Washington, where, with the help of fellow students, he ported the game to the microcomputers at the computer lab. This version was named Kong, because Donkey Kong had just appeared in the arcades that summer, and James thought that maybe the friend had described Donkey Kong to him, and he'd misunderstood so much his version turned out completely different? It got so popular on campus, you'd think it was a port of Donkey Kong. Most people visited the lab just to play it. The group of students tinkering with Kong was joined by a Doug Smith, who had an 8-year-old nephew. After seeing the game at the computer lab a couple of times, the kid asked why they couldn't play it on their home Apple II. It was a good question, and naturally the kid wouldn't shut up, so Doug Smith finally programmed his own home port of Kong. He called it Miner, because why not, it's a game about collecting gold in a mine with a pickaxe, and also because Doug had plans for the game. Smith paid Brett Sanus for the rights and sent the Apple II port where all cool kids send their games to, Bruderband. They told him, no thanks. The game still ran in text mode. So Doug had to slow down a bit, improve the presentation, and submitted it again around Christmas 82 to four publishers. This time he got eager offers and picked the one from Bruderband, as it seemed to offer more money in the long run. One of the first things Bruderband people told Doug Smith was that there was a game out there called Miner 2049er. They suggested renaming his Miner to Load Runner, and this would be just one of the polishing touches the project would receive before its release in the summer of 83. Bruderband even tried to tie the game in with its great big head choplifter by setting them in the same universe, so the player would be avoiding not just any guards, but agents of the bungling empire. Except Doug Smith was so bad at drawing and animating them that players would instantly forget whatever the manual said and refer to the enemies exclusively as monks. In later editions of Loadrunner, when they could pay artists, they would roll with the evil monk theme. A far more intentional addition was the in-game level editor. The original Suicide was a text mode thing, and its levels most likely were stored as simple strings of characters for the computer to unroll onto the screen. There's treasure, there's a ladder, there's a platform. It was both easy to edit, and levels didn't take much space compared to games with more bespoke and artistic level designs. When Doug begrudgingly added graphics, replacing text with tiles, the underlying data structure must have remained the same, and levels were not hard to change from within the program itself, like you would in a word processor. So Doug Smith implemented a proper user-friendly graphical level editor, which made Loadrunner Bruderband's counterpart to EA's pinball construction set. And since the levels didn't take up much space, there could be a lot of them. 
We've heard of games with 3 levels, 10 levels, 20 levels, but all of that looks pathetic now, since the original Load Runner shipped with 150 levels. And even though they were made out of only a handful of building blocks, they weren't all samey. As you progressed, you'd notice that the routes you had to take through the stages to beat them grew more restrictive, the timing of actions got tighter. Where Space Panic was a pure action game of bonking aliens through holes, Load Runner became a puzzle requiring some quick thinking. Not all levels of Load Runner were designed by Doug Smith. When he created the first home port for his nephew, the game must have spread to all computer-owning kids in the neighborhood. As Jimmy Marr writes in his piece on the game, Doug asked the kids to make some levels for him, and he paid them for each level, and then spent some time polishing the content and arranging the stages to have a smooth difficulty progression. Now, we've run into games created by teenagers, and children took part in playtesting stuff, obviously, but employing child labor for content creation seems like a novelty. The Load Runner credits don't list any designers apart from Douglas Smith, so his workforce probably was not informed about such things as attribution or royalties, which at least was a valuable life lesson in itself. So it's June 83, and Bruderban has released Load Runner for a few micros. 150 levels of climbing and digging action gradually tightening into devious puzzles that require control precision and deep understanding of how every element of the game works. And on top of that, there's the level editor, promising potentially infinite content and an outlet for your own creativity. Load Runner was an instant classic. A few hundred thousand copies were sold within the first year, many more were no doubt pirated. Hudson Soft swept in to get the rights for a Famicom remake, and released it in Japan in 84, as one of the earliest third-party titles on the platform. That version sold a million and a half copies, even though it had only 50 levels. Japan in general provided about 80% of all Load Runner sales, and some of the later titles in the franchise were released exclusively there. And the game rose even higher. The same 84, IREM released The Arcade Cabinet, and Load Runner beat Choplifter to Dishonor. But not Hey Ank, Your Alien. Of course, there was an official Load Runner board game too, designed by one of Bruderbund's founders. Douglas Smith himself checked out of further development of the series already by 85 and would sit back cashing in the checks until 1993, when the commercial rights to the game reverted to him, and Smith had to find other companies to pay him for the right to make more load runners. Doug died in 2014, with his only notable contribution to games being Load Runner, originally a Space Panic clone by James Bratsanis. Since I mentioned Bruderband, I need to add that another game that graced Atari 8 bits in 83 was Spelunker, from a short-lived company Micrographic Image. Its founders, three programmers from a freshly bankrupt company, Games by Apollo, were trying to make do through contract work for various employers, including Bruderbund. Spelunker, though, was something they made for themselves, all three working each on some aspect of the game. But this was the time of Activision and EA slapping developers' names on box covers, so the team credited the project to one of them, Tim Martin, with the plan to credit the next release to somebody else. There wouldn't be a next release. Spelunker was another of those oxygen timer ladder games with fixed jump arcs, where you died by enemy contact and falling off great heights. You controlled a guy trying to collect all the keys in a series of caves full of minecarts, elevators, ropes, ghosts and bats. So many bats. And the bats didn't merely hurt on touch, they carpet-bombed you with deadly guano. 
you'd need to pick up and use a special item to make all the bats vanish temporarily, a flare. You also got a ghost-busting gun and bombs to take out some other obstacles. Spelunker had only a handful of levels, but each was made up of several scrolling sections of devious design by Robert Barber, so there was quite a lot of game there. It didn't save Micrographic Image from running out of money, but Tim Martin was able to license the game to Bruderband, who in turn did its magic, and in 85, IREM released an arcade cabinet and a Famicom port. Both received so well in Japan, Spelunke would get two exclusive sequels there. By the way, another former Games by Apollo developer working at Micrographic Image was the mystery woman Ban Chan. I hope I'm pronouncing it at least half right, since it's a Vietnamese name. She made one game, but fans and researchers spent decades trying to track her down, and recently they've succeeded. Turns out she got married and changed her name. All of it. Ban Chan came to America as a refugee from South Vietnam after the war, grew up in Texas, dropped out of high school because of the language barrier, but she picked up programming languages and briefly worked in the game industry, before getting more serious coding jobs. At Games by Apollo, she made the reason people were looking for her. Wabbit. It's one of the first video games with an identifiably female protagonist. A really pissed-off girl hurling projectiles at rabbits trying to raid a vegetable patch. Banchan pulled out all the stops and used every hack to give the character a pretty large multicolored sprite. Quite an achievement on the Atari 2600. And she still remembers her game development days with fondness. But we're still not done with jumping in 1983 yet. This summer, Taito 2 has got something new in store for us. Elevator action. Unfortunately, its development is again not covered particularly well. The Patman QC YouTube channel has a history of the game, but I was unable to find it anywhere else online, so I'm not sure where the story is actually coming from. The story is that at an industry conference in Tokyo, a bunch of game developers got bored, and to pass the time, they raced from the top of a high-rise building to the bottom, using elevators, escalators, and whatever else they could find. One of the guys was the designer of the Jungle King, Jungle Hunt cabinet I've talked about earlier, on the lookout for new ideas. And in his mind, racing in elevators blended together with spy movies, James Bond films. And so, Elevator Action was a game where you controlled Agent 17, Otto, trying to reach his getaway car in the basement of a tall building, coming down from the top. But you couldn't simply ride an elevator all the way, none of them covered the whole structure, and you also had to get out on some floors to enter red office doors to steal secret documents. You had to steal all of them before escaping. The problem was that the rest of the building's numerous doors were blue, and they occasionally produced enemy agents trying to stop Otto by shooting the guy. And the agents were crafty at that. Sometimes they fired normally and Otto could duck under the bullet, but sometimes they would crouch themselves and shoot low, so you had to jump over the projectile. Entering a red door let you hide for a few moments and maybe wait for a guard to pass by so that he wasn't looking straight at you when you popped back out, but you could not hide forever. Now, Otto was far from defenseless. He could also shoot his gun forward while standing or crouching or riding an elevator, which was handy to fire a preemptive shot as he were arriving on the floor, because due to black magic or more likely programming difficulties, Agent 17 was unable to crouch while moving in an elevator. However, Otto was able to ride on the roof of an elevator or jump across a shaft, so long as its elevator was somewhere up above, otherwise the cables were in the way. Another cute quirk of the game was that with the right timing, you could shoot a ceiling lamp, 
And like the fruit in Donkey Kong Jr., it would come crashing down, taking out enemy agents that happened to stand under it, and temporarily making that floor dark. This slightly increased enemies' reaction time, making Agent 17's mission easier, and also taking out enemies in the dark got you more points. Otto had another talent too, a black belt in karate. In gameplay terms, it meant that when he jumped, he stretched his legs forward in a kick, and the enemy agent, maybe even several he landed on, were taken out as if shot. This, of course, makes Elevator Action one of the very first video games where you eliminated enemies by jumping on top of them. Additionally, it managed to beat both Karateka and the hugely influential cabinet Kung Fu Master to weaving martial arts into action, though in a very primitive way. So, Elevator Action was slightly ahead of its time. Unfortunately, the game also happened to be a bit on the repetitive side. Once you cleared one building, you pretty much knew all the cabinet had to offer, and there were plenty of other exciting games out there in 83. But Elevator Action was fun, addictive, and sufficiently popular to get console ports, though the Atari 2600 version got cancelled due to the crash. There were microcomputer ports too, the specky one is really nice looking and colourful. And, as usual, there were enhanced clones, like the 1986 Mission Elevator on the Commodore 64, where you were searching a building for a bomb and had to collect hints on how to disarm it by examining various objects in the interiors, or buying drinks from a bartender, or leaving money around to bribe enemy agents. Just don't search wall sockets, because it makes your character stick his fingers into them. The strangest thing is that only a couple of months before Elevator Action, Namco released its Mappy cabinet, about searching a large building, a mansion, door to door, to find a set of stolen items. You were playing as a mouse cop who could not jump other than on a trampoline, and your enemies were a gang of literal cat burglars, the Miaoki gang, led by Nyamko. Yes. You had no weapons, but could stun cats by slamming them in their faces with doors, or zapping them with an energy wave hiding behind flashing doors, and by dropping bells on their heads. Dropping things on people's and animals' heads is definitely a theme today. Mappy did not get much traction in the West, Elevator Action was the better-known door-opening franchise, but in Japan the mouse cop would return a few more times over the decades in his own games, and as a reference in other Namco titles. Elevator Action would get sequels and remakes too. There was also a curious thing called Spy Games Elevator Mission, put out for the Nintendo Wii in 2007 by Dreams Company, founded by ex-Taito star Tomohiro Nishikado. Elevator Mission is sort of elevator action, but in first person and with procedurally generated flaws. It may have been planned as a proper official entry in the series, but Taito got bought out in 2005, and whatever Dreams Company released in the end was received extremely poorly. Finally, we're going back to 1983 for one more classic. Over at Nintendo, Shigeru Miyamoto happened to like Joust. You know, the game with flying ostriches. So he cloned it, in his own special way. After a couple of Donkey Kongs, Miyamoto had already grown attached to the Mario character and wanted to use him as the protagonist. But Joust had that nice and profitable cooperative two-player mode, so the new game needed another main character. That's how a recolored, palette-swapped, green overalls Mario appeared, soon named Luigi by the Nintendo of America people, as was the custom. And with this new game being titled Mario Brothers, it's clear that both Mario's and Luigi's last name was 
Mario. I think that's official. Although Luigi's first playable appearance came not in the cabinet Nintendo released in the Supernova Hot Summer of 83, but in the Mario Bros. Game & Watch introduced that spring. It was a game about two guys loading some boxes, and while the supplementary materials called them Mario and Luigi, the whimsical black silhouettes were recognizably Makoto Kano's designs. The names were clearly a marketing move to prepare the audiences for the main event. And going back to the main event, another thing Mario Brothers The Cabinet inherited from Joust was the movement physics. No, Mario and Luigi did not get the wing flap button or the aerial controls, but they had momentum and needed some time to accelerate to full speed or stop. Obviously this affected the jump arcs as well. Another novelty was that falling from a big height no longer killed the characters, because that had never been fun. The brothers would be jumping around a single-screen arena vaguely similar to the one in Joust, both wrapped around at the sides of the screen and featured several symmetrical levels of platforms, either at the sides or the center. But while Joust would remove or return its platforms for different stage types, the layout of Mario Brothers just worked and stayed the same throughout in both regular and bonus stages. The new cabinet had bonus stages to add some variety, as was the industry's trend at the time, and in them the brothers collected coins. In regular stages, they fought an assortment of pest creatures populating the sewers. The reason the Mario brothers were now working in the sewers was that someone had told Miyamoto that Mario looked like a total plumber. And Miyamoto was an artist. If a character looks like a plumber, maybe he is. So Mario and Luigi went down into the sewers to fix some issues with the pipes. You could see the pipes on the screen. They acted as platforms and a few big ones even played a greater part, creating an enemy loop. Critters would appear at the top of the stage, skitter down the platforms to the bottom, enter the pipes there, and re-emerge from the pipes at the top. The pipes of Stun Cycle say hello. Obviously the enemies would only go on this exciting pipe ride if Mario and Luigi failed to eliminate them. And when it comes to fighting, I'm again detecting a hint of influence from Joust. To take out a rider in Joust, you had to ram into them so that your lance was above theirs, and that knocked the riders off and turned them into glowing eggs you had to collect to remove the enemy for good before their ostriches picked them back up. In Mario Brothers, the enemies had to be removed first by jumping at them from a lower level and attacking them from the bottom, or in the bottom. Some required a few hits, some were simply hard to hit, but attacks from below, through the platforms, knocked them out, and then you needed to come closer and kick them away while they were down. Or they'd get back on their feet again. I don't need to look far for the inspiration for this new hitting from below mechanism. It's Nintendo's and Miyamoto's earlier cabinet, Popeye. In that game, the player's character did not jump, because Popeye the Sailor strides and punches, but his longtime rival Bluto did jump. He was on the screen most of the time, he was the main baddie, they had to give him a bunch of different attacks so that he was a threat constantly and not just when he was right next to the hero. So Bluto or Brutus could toss bottles from a distance, if he was right above Popeye he would try to reach down, and if he was right below, he would jump with his arm and clenched fist extended up. And in Mario Brothers, it was this attack jump to a T that Mario and Luigi used to knock out sewer pests. Which is of course ironic, since Mario appeared as a stand-in for Popeye, and now he was jumping like the guy's rival. And Mario still jumps like that, though these days it's more of an upbeat fist pump rather than an act of aggression. Anyway, having borrowed and reimagined plenty of elements of Joust, Mario Brothers left it behind, far behind, in the sheer variety of content. 
The stage layout always remained the same, but visually changed, colors and patterns switched. Then there were the pests, colorful turtles, crabs, flies. Each type got an introduction, a cutscene showing its name, behavior, and how to take it out. You'd get familiar with them, and then the game would start mixing the types in most inconvenient ways. Then it would bring in ice in two forms. Firstly, huge icicles slowly formed under the top platforms and dropped down onto the middle one. Secondly, a new pest, Slip Ice, showed up and roamed the stage, and if you didn't take care of it quickly, it would take a shine to one of the platforms and ice it over. And then, running on that pipe, you had to deal with the dreaded ice physics. Actually, once you've got momentum-based movement, ice physics are very easy to add, as a simple multiplier reducing the character's acceleration and braking performance. But it's so annoying, especially when the right speed and place of a jump make a life-or-death difference. Even though it was a relatively straightforward action game, Mario Bros. also included an element of long-term strategic planning, the POW block. It was a block in the bottom center part of the stage, and if you jumped onto it, you were perfectly positioned to knock out enemies at the very center of the screen. That's nice, very useful, but you could also, by accident or on purpose, hit the block from below, and an earthquake would shake the whole screen. Like that bizarre jump button in Amidar, sort of. All enemies touching the ground at that moment were affected by the power block and would flip over, either getting knocked out or righting themselves again. You still had to kick the pests away, so it didn't quite clear the screen, but it was pretty nice in an emergency too. But, like the jump in Amidar, you could only use the power block a few times before it vanished, to reappear after the next bonus stage, which could take a while. When Mario Bros. got released in the summer of 83, one of the first things arcade-goers noticed was that it was not Donkey Kong. Nintendo's output of the previous few years had gone repetitive and boring. We can be pretty sure about that, because the Famicom was not selling well. Nintendo had fallen into the same trap Atari had with its VCS launch. The first available titles were ports of earlier arcade hits. Clearly, it was a gift of game goodness bestowed on home users. But when people saw noticeably downgraded console editions of Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. and Popeye, instead of Glee, their reaction was... Oh, this old crap again. For some reason. And then Nintendo released the Mario Bros. port, the latest, and it was the first game on the system with a two-player cooperative mode. Not only could you play something new from Nintendo, finally, finally at home, but also with a friend. The sales of the Famicom started to climb, and by the time it was introduced in the United States, Nintendo would know what people actually wanted. The original Mario Bros. cabinet did only okay in the arcades. It was up against some tough competition like Star Wars and Dragon's Lair. But Nintendo didn't really care, the Famicom was the top priority. And for his services to the console, Shigeru Miyamoto was finally given a research and development unit of his own, R&D 4, to make more good video games. Hold on, some of you may have thought just now. We know of R&D 1, R&D 2, and now R&D 4. Where's number 3? Well, you know that prank when they release pigs labeled 1, 2, and 4 and watch everyone look for the third one? This is nothing like it. R&D 3 existed. It was a small hardware design unit run by Genyo Takeda, Nintendo's veteran game developer and the creator of Punch-Out. 
Alright, we've covered the first years of games about climbing and jumping and reached Mario Brothers, which on the one hand is a success and on the other a total failure, because the original plan was to get to Super Mario Brothers. But as you've observed, 1980 to 83 were increasingly busy. We got games about climbing ladders and vines, riding elevators and jumping over things. Yet sometimes there was no jumping, and sometimes there was no climbing or elevators, yet they all looked similar and were interrelated, so players and the press wanted to come up with a common name for these games, and just couldn't yet. Even at this stage, these games with no name have already introduced us to a few long-living mechanics. Such as the oxygen meter popping up to remind you your character cannot breathe underwater. Or in Space Caves, Space Panic's timer was an oxygen meter too. Another big thing Space Panic started was dropping things on top of enemies to kill them. Then we met our first navigational arrow in a most unlikely place, Jump Bug, a game most of which used forced scrolling. But not the pyramid, and they don't want you to get lost in the pyramid, so here's an arrow pointing up. Joust gave us a taste of the original Flappy Bird flight physics, which we will run into again very soon, since Mario Brothers is not the last time Nintendo clones the game. In addition, it was one of the early video games with cooperative play, coming after Heiank Your Alien and Ripoff, but it's not like any of these invented playing together against a common enemy. A real treasure trove was Bob Matson's Mountain King. First, you play hot and cold using sound cues, a tune whose volume changes to guide you to an invisible artifact. Then you shine a flashlight at it to make it interactable, which may be one of the first instances of flashlights in video games, and it's actually useful, like you're playing Alan Wake or something. And if you're unlucky, Mountain King has a spider enemy who traps you, and you have to wiggle the joystick to break free. Think of all the decades of wiggling the stick to break free that are to come. Elevator action introduced us to jumping on top of people to kill them, and also shooting out the lights to disorient the enemy and make your life easier. That's going to come in handy too. And finally we got acquainted with Mario Brothers, which aside from developing the character of Mario further, demonstrated that Shigeru Miyamoto was not a one-hit wonder. He'd started to look like one with his post-Donkey Kong games being more of Donkey Kong, but when Nintendo desperately needed help again, he delivered another fresh hit. Maybe this guy's worth something. At the same time, he's not some god of game design making never-before-seen ideas appear out of ether. He's aware of other games, he's borrowing, iterating, just like everybody else. Miyamoto happens to be good at it, and he approaches his work like an artist, not a programmer, but from his point of view, he's not really doing anything special. And that's how you get the exchange from a 1989 book interview with the guy, translated at schmoplations.com. The interviewer asks, Many people say you are a genius. What do you think of that? And Shigeru Miyamoto answers, Really? Hearing things like that makes me blush from ear to ear. I'm just a normal person. End quote. Well, since we're not done with this topic yet, next time we'll continue and see more stuff from normal person Shigeru Miyamoto and many other persons in Japan, America and Europe. We've got ice to climb, reactors to blow up, and also plenty of robots, ninjas and bombs. This has been Computer Game Evolution. Thank you for listening, thanks to LegoFan94 for covering the hosting, and don't forget to donate to good causes.